Well, hello there. My name is Jim Lang. I do the mornings at 105.9 of the region of Markham. I write hockey books. Um, I'm an Uber driver for my teenage daughters. I'm a short order cook for my wife. I walk the dog and do generally what else has to be done. Uh, I started in the business in the 80s. I went to Humber College for radio. And at the time, there was radio only, TV only, journalism only. You didn't do other things. Uh, but along the way, I've worked at different stations. I worked at Shoma FM Montreal. Um, and I, I was working with John Derringer at the time, producing the morning show. Then ended up back at the fan in 95. And had always thought about sports. But when I broke into radio, there was no fan. There was no sports radio. That wasn't until after I had started. And then I worked, been in sports, sports media from 90, well, I guess 95 to uh, officially, unofficially 2013. When my uh, second go around at the fan, my contract wasn't renewed. But along the way, during my term at Sportsnet, I started to learn how to write. Because they wanted content for their website. And I said, I'd like to do that. I thought it'd be good for me as a broadcaster to be the better you write, the better you can broadcast and good, just good for me professionally. And lo and behold, after doing that about 10 years, I ended up with a book deal. And I wrote a book with Ty Domi called Shift Work, and it did very well. And then after that, I did a book with Wendell Clark called Bleeding Blue, and it did very well as also. So I was very lucky that way. And uh, so basically... Now I do mornings at this uh, really cool, small, privately owned FM station in Markham that services um, York Region, North Toronto, and there's only probably about 14 of us in total who work there. It's typical of small, you know, small business radio in 2017, and but it affords me time to do things like this, this podcast, and and study and work and do the research I need to write hockey books. And other than that, that's that's basically what I do. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Well, thanks for coming out. That's the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're recording here uh, inside Girth Radio at the Pacific Junction Hotel in Toronto, where Mike Richards yes. also does his YouTube show. And as you walked in, you were telling me that you've known him for years. Um, where, where did you guys first start working together? Or it, it, This would have been, uh, I got hired at Shoma FM Montreal in 93. So I was the producer for the morning show for with John Derringer. And I also did some swing announcing. And then in December of 94, we were back in Toronto. And that's the first time I met Mike Richards. Because we already knew that we had committed to come to be part of the fan morning show. John was going to be the host. Mike was going to be the co-host and do the comedy parts I was going to produce. And Craig Venn, who a lot of people know from Q as Lobster Boy, now was doing mornings at the Rock in Oshawa. Uh -huh. He was the op engineer. So it was the four of us. It was John Derringer, Mike Richards, myself, and Craig Venn. And so I first met Mike in December of 94. Then we started working together in February of 95. And I've known him by well now. It's like 23 years. And... You know, we've done a lot of stuff together uh, when he was in Calgary, when he was here. What You know, we've been buddies and we've run into each other. We've always had a good friendship. So I was thrilled to see him put this together with RobMikeRichards.com, the YouTube channel, the podcast, working with David Bastel. I'm, I'm very happy for him. Nice. Yeah. Um, I mean, it seems that a lot of, 
I guess older broadcasters, whether it's in radio or, or wherever these days now, um, are the first ones to let go. Is, is that just a, a function of they've got the most, they've got the highest pay, and so? Yeah, that's part of it. I would, yeah. I would, Kareem, I would think that's definitely part of it because with more experience, you're on the higher pay scale, more benefits, more vacation, mm. more everything. Yeah. And unfortunately, media, not just radio, but media, and I'm talking television, internet, print in Canada in 2017, is a bottom line business. Mm -hmm. And I see what's happening with our major newspapers, with Bell Media, Rogers, Shaw. I mean, you, there isn't anyone that's been untouched the last five years. Nobody, whether it's um, you know being packaged out, early retirement, mm -hmm. uh, buyouts, uh, downsizing, you name it. I mean, the game has changed. The the financial ceiling, I think what they're paying people has changed because of the revenue they deem is not there. When you're part of a big company, you're beholden to shareholders. Yeah. And if the the CFO and the CEO demand that they expect certain profit margin from media and they're not producing it, then they're told to make changes to create that. And and there's a lot of great, great broadcasters sitting on the sideline in this country who have decided to say to heck with it and have made their own YouTube channels, um, podcasts. Uh, social media accounts and that's where the technology of 2017 helps because if this was 10 15 years ago then what are you going to do true like you, you had nowhere else to go mm -hmm. but now even if you're doing something else you can be creative you can practice your craft you can broadcast mm -hmm. and through in cam on camera with youtube or on radio with a podcast and still still be relevant still be a voice yeah absolutely and i think that's a that's a wonderful thing Let's go a little bit back uh, to your Humber College days, and you said you you know they had different streams, and the stream that you chose was radio, right? Radio broadcasting. What was it about radio that that really appealed to you? When I, my dad was in the Air Force, the Canadian Air Force, and in the late seventies, we were transferred from CFB Trenton to Burbank, California. Wow! The Canadian military had bought this airplane called the CP one forty Aurora. And it was built at the Lockheed plant in Burbank. So all of a sudden, I went from Little St. Mary's Catholic School in Trenton yeah. to Luther Burbank Junior High with 1,200 kids and only grade 7, 8, 9. Wow. That's a massive school. Massive school. And and I was introduced to FM Rock Radio in the late 70s. They had KROQ, K-Rock, and KLOS. There was a morning guy named Fraser Smith, and it was KLOS, the best in the West. And it was – I mean, it was – beyond anything I'd ever heard in radio in, you know, eastern central Ontario. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Now, I, and all these years, while I, I always liked radio. I used to listen to, um, you know, Chum FM and Rick Ringer in the early 80s and then definitely um, uh, Scruff Connors at Q. Yeah, yeah. And all the different morning shows in Jesse and Gene. But I never really thought that the radio was for me. And then in grade 13, my marks were, yeah, my parents said, you know, you probably should look at you may not you're probably not going to get in university look at a plan b and look at the community college handbook and i'm not kidding i was looking through the community college handbook trying to think well what should i do and i thought well i always loved radio yeah i'm going to study radio and i you had to audition somehow i got into humber college and stan lark was the program director at the time and i was the don landry was a year ahead of me oh yes so he was the year ahead of me and yeah. i was a year behind him and uh, <laughs> was he still doing impressions way back? I then? You know, I I, I don't <laughs> I honestly don't remember if he was starting it then or he's just in the. I know he did a little bit of Don Cherry back then. Yeah, 
Um, and then Don and I, at my first radio job was at CKBB in Barrie, which is now 101.1 FM. And Don did the evening show and I did the overnights. Wow. This was like 87, 88. And, um, and I felt it was weird because they were going around the classroom talking about your experience. I had none. And they were like, there were all these like, I worked at the community radio and I worked at campus radio and I, and like, okay. I'm like, I've never been in a radio station before. I didn't, I didn't even know how to talk in front of a microphone. Yeah. And so I had, I was probably the rawest of the raw in the class. And so in the late eighties, I got hired at this radio station in Barrie for approximately $11,000 a year. And, um, I was still living at home cause I couldn't afford to live on my own. And then my dad got transferred from camp Borden to CFB Downsview. And I had a, just brutal lemon of a car and i said to my boss i said look i like i'm not going to make that drive in the 400 in the winter with my car can you bump my salary to thirteen thousand? I, I i worked it out i can live in the basement apartment my buddies if i can get thirteen thousand a year i said oh we can't pay you that wow so i i had to leave and i was i did a couple jobs to, here and there for a couple years and then this would have been um 91 and then I got uh, laid off of the job, and, but I had, was there over a year, so I had unemployment insurance. Mm-hmm. So I was an intern at Q okay. at, at a Humber, and I called the who used to be – she was still the promotions director at Q, and I said, look, I have unemployment insurance. You don't need to pay me. I'll do anything. Okay. So I, I'm not making this up. Yeah. I – I stuffed prize bags with prizes. Yeah. I handed out prize stickers. I was the station mascot where I used to wear a bear costume at events. Mm-hmm. And and so I, that went on for about eight months. Just where, anything to get in. I, was the, I worked for free for eight months. Wow. Eight, four or five days a week. Eight months. Yeah. And then finally I said, we're going we're gonna to hire you. And there was an opening. So then I was producing... Um, the six o'clock rock report with John Derringer and Steve Warden and producing John's afternoon show. What it really was is they needed someone because John would, would do these great breaks and then go for a smoke and wander. So they needed someone to run the board and play the three or four or five song sweeps. And then you would, because there was no cell phones, you'd yell, John, this is the last song. And he'd run in. What was it? And you'd say, you know, it was Def Leppard. Okay. And then, you know, he'd do like 60 seconds of magic, hit the spots. I'd get in, you know, do all. And so that it was really, wow. it was a great experience, a, a great learning experience. And then, then from there, I ended up in Montreal and yada, yada, yada. Were they on. programming music back then still? Yeah, oh, yeah. They were definitely programming music. But, I mean, John had enough clout that if he felt like he needed to change something, he could within reason. Of course, mm-hmm. CanCon rules are very, very strict in Canada. So yes. that's the one thing still to this day you can't mess around with. Canadian content because you, if you get, you know, audited by you know yes. SoCan and the CRTC, you can get a lot of trouble. Uh, but wh- where we had freedom was the six o'clock rock report, which um, basically that was jo- that was John and Steve's one hour to do whatever they want, mm-hmm. talk about what they want, play what they want, and it, it had great ratings and made money, so no one no one bothered them. Yeah, you know, and they let them do their thing, and it was it was. It was one of the best, to me, as far as I'm concerned, at that time in the early 90s, the 6 o'clock, early, you know, yeah, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, the 6 o'clock rock report was about the best FM radio in Toronto. Wow. I thought it was that strong. And what I, you know what, the, the name sounds familiar, and I'm sure I've heard it. Is it, you know, the, the, the hits, the rock hits of the day and the news going on with the rock stars? Is that really what it was about, the rock report? 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They so they would um, Steve Warden would compile the rock news of the day. Now this is pre-internet, mm. but understand this is like ninety two, ninety three, where you'd have to go to the wire in the newspaper, com- and you know maybe you had a buddy in the record company would call and hey there was an accident and one of the the bass player from uh, Guns N' Roses, uh, sure. Duff McKagan, sliced his hand in a bottle of whiskey, or be for him it was vodka. And, uh, and you know, the, so then someone would tell Steve and said, hey, we got news that, you know, Guns N' Roses had to cancel three dates because blah, 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 blah. And, um, and through, so through working the phones, prep work, this and that, through the record companies, they would have bands come in. They would have uh, musicians on the phone. It, 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 you name it. I remember one time they had Bono on the phone from – Wow. Uh, uh, U2 was playing Exhibition Stadium. In the late summer of 92, and through the record company, Bono was on the phone with, you know, John and Steve during the Rock Report. That was That's a pretty big get back then. Oh, yeah, for that's sure. That's a pretty big get. And so when were you there? What years were you there? Well, I was, uh, I was there all of 92 to early 93. Mm-hmm. And then in early 93, it would have been February 93, uh, John got an offer to be the morning man at Shom FM Montreal. In Montreal, yeah. And then he said, look, do you want to come with me and produce the morning show? And I'm... My late twenties, mid mid to late twenties, single. I like, I got yes. Why not? Sure. I I got nothing else. Like yeah. Why not? Let's go. And another rock station out of Montreal. Another rock station. Yeah. yeah. It was like the Q one hundred seven of Montreal. Of Montreal. Yeah. It's a heritage FM station in Montreal, English radio, and it was a great experience. I was there two years and learned a lot about life and business because basically, I had never I had never been to Montreal mm-hmm. until the day I went. To find an apartment. Wow. I'm not making that. In so, your late 20s. Yeah, I was 27 when yeah. I... Yeah, I was 27 when I got the job. And I had, I had no reason. I had never been. I'd been to <laughs> Ottawa. I'd been to other places. I never... So there was the, the first time I arrived in Montreal, the very first time, was the day I showed up to find an apartment. Yeah. And, uh, and so I didn't know one street from the other and... I had a beat up K car with summer tires <laughs> that would slide around oh, wow. the snow and ice, but I, you know, you find a way, and I didn't sure. know any better. You know, like yeah. it was, it was a lot of fun, and, and you know, it, because of the nature of the station and the show, I did a lot of different things, and and you know, did some jockeying, did some announcing, did some, you know, interviewing, did a little bit of everything, mm-hmm. and, as well as producing and you know, working in the morning show. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think it was last week. Uh, Chris Cornell, uh, mm-hmm. Soundgarden, passed. Um, I think early reports are suicide, yeah. but there's some talk. Um, that must have been huge back in the early to mid-90s as you were at Q and and uh, Chom FM in, in, in Montreal. What, what do you remember about those days and the whole scene from Seattle? Well, I remember Soundgarden coming in to Q. It would have been February or March of 92 when Soundgarden was really just starting out. Yeah. And I don't believe Black Hole Sun was even released yet. I think no, it was. I, I don't think that album was out yet. It was the, it was, it was the real heavy dirgy song that first came out. Um, the, it got some FM airplay, but it's heavy bass, heavy bottom end, um, and that that song had just come out, and then Black Hole Sun came out a little bit later. So they were just new. I. I mean, I, everyone called it like the Seattle, the grunge and that. To me, it was just their form of rock. Mm-hmm. It was punkified rock and roll. If you heard Duff McKagan and a lot of the guys who are from that area, they were heavily influenced by 
rock and glam rock and punk at the same time. Yeah. So that was their influences, and that's why a lot of the music had a feel of kind of both and appealed to both. Uh, I mean, it was it's a tragic story to hear about Cornell's got a young family. I'm a yeah. parent. I'm a father. You hate to see that. Um, you know, um, I've I've done some charity work with Ian Leggett, who's a a Canadian golfer, mm-hmm. and, and he's really he does great work with Sportsnet, and he's he's part of this uh, charity called Stomp the Stigma, and there's a real stigma in especially men over the age of 35 with mental illness and suicide, and I I really didn't know how bad it was till they started reciting some of the stats that that men over 35 are the highest rate of suicide wow. in North America, and for a variety of reasons, and so. You know, when you see stuff like Chris Cornell or, you know, Robin Williams, you just go, oh, my God. Like, yeah. it, I mean, it, it is stunning and it happens. And, you know, it's a, it's a it's kind of sad because the music they made, like, I mean, the Black Hole Sun is a it's a rock classic. Yeah. And that's his that's his baby. Mm-hmm. You know, that and I put that up with a lot of classic rock songs. And that's, you know, something they came up with. So, yeah, that was a really sad story. And they were great. They were I mean, Chris Cornell's great himself, but Soundgarden, for a while there, they were phenomenal. Absolutely. I remember having that super unknown album. Um, just phenomenal. Phenomenal album. Um, you, 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 you mentioned you have, a, you have a young daughter? I have two teenage daughters. Two teenage daughters. Yes. Do you, do you talk, what do they think of the music that, that you grew up with? Now, that's interesting you say that. My youngest, who's 14, is obsessed with Halsey, Selena Gomez, Taylor Swift, Katy Perry, all that stuff. Yeah. Loves it. Now, my oldest is going to be 16 uh, towards later this year. She's in grade 10. She's more eclectic. Now, she's in the um, symphonic music program in Huron Heights in Newmarket. Wow. So she auditioned. She's a very good musician. She plays tr- a trombone in the band, and she plays piano. She can play off sheet music. Mm-hmm. So she'll listen to classical. She's far more variety, bigger variety of music than her father. Uh, she'll listen to jazz, blues, pop music, but it's interesting. Her and her her buddy, her girlfriend, just saw Guardians of the Galaxy two. Yes, and she was playing some songs in her aux cord in the car. And I go, I looked at, it, I goes, oh, dad, they it was an ELO song. And yes, it was, and it was <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy two, and she thought it was so cool, so she downloaded it. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's where I think a lot of the the quote unquote millennials are introduced to like older sort older of songs, classic yeah. music. Through a big, big budget movie like that, and they go, "Hey, I like that." So now with Apple Music, you just you just download, you just it. find it. Yeah, 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 nice. Yeah, we we. It's, it's funny you say that. My my son is eleven, and um, he thinks I listen to the crazy, you know, crazy music. But, <laughs> but we went to Guardians of the Galaxy, and uh, there's a Fleetwood Mac song that comes. I go, "That was the one of the best concerts that I've ever been to." So we get home and I pull out the Rumors album uh, and, and play it. I said, "Like every song on here." Is a hit. This is one of the top ten albums ever. Of all made. time. Of all time. Oh, absolutely. And does he like it? He'll he'll nod. <laughs> yeah. But when yeah. we get in the car, ninety nine point nine. He wants you know he wants yeah, all yeah, the he wants all the hits and uh, and you know and and he, and he knows he knows all the songs. Which, yeah, it's, which, which is uh, hilarious. It's funny. Uh, it's my youngest is the same way. She definitely she don't even want to. She'll skip the radio right to her aux cord to her playlist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now my oldest, you know, she knows I like some classic rock music. She'll, she'll listen along, along to some of the different stuff I listen to cause she likes that. But then at home with her friends, she'll listen to completely other yeah, stuff yeah. that I would never listen to. Absolutely. So you're in Montreal. 
Right. Uh, you leave there when ninety four ninety five. We uh, then John got hired to be the morning man at the fan, and then he said, "Do you want to come back to Toronto and do the morning show at the fan?" I said, "Sure." This was this was almost two years to the day, so this is February of ninety five, and so this is. Now, people don't remember this, but Bob McCallum was the morning man at the fan for a brief stint. That's right. I remember so that. So John was basically replacing Bob McCallum as the morning man. And was Bob going to the afternoon show? or? Was well, he... no. No, here's what happened. Okay. Dan Shulman was doing the afternoons and was killing it. He was. He's a natural. He's amazing. He's amazing, yeah. right? So basically at the time, Bob was let go. One of the times he got fired. Or right. Let go. Yeah. So, but two weeks... So John shows up to do the morning show with Mike Richards and myself and yeah. Craig Van. We're just getting settled in. And as God is my witness, like two weeks later, Dan Shulman gives his notice that he's leaving because he's going to be the TV voice for the Blue Jays for TSN. Yeah. So then they have to call Bob McCallum back to go back and do the afternoon show. <laughs> so he said, oh, is that right? So that's how he ended up doing the show from Las Vegas. I remember that. That's how that happened. He yeah. said, you want me back? I'll tell you how I'm going to come back. <laughs> I'm going to spend three months in Vegas in the winter and do the show for my living room. And he did. Yeah, I remember him in Las Vegas doing the show. That's right. And, and then Sh- Jim Shaky Toronto. Hunt would be in the studio alone. And then every once in a while, the line would drop. He and was then, classic. And the producers would be running up and down the hall. Yeah. And there'd be Nelson Millman and Bob McAwood Sr. and all these guys trying to figure out what's going on. And... Um, you know, in the producer's room at the time, there was Greg Sansoni, wow. Todd Macklin, uh, Todd Hayes, myself, um, uh, Ellie Friedman would be doing stuff, George Strombolopoulos, Jeff Merrick, Bob Mackowitz Jr., all part of that era of the wow. of the fan. You know, so it was it was pretty amazing breeding ground for, yeah. for going on. Barry Davis, like doing That's other right. stuff in the business. Yeah. And all kind of went through there at one point and, and learn your chops. What kind of uh, Paul McCowan? He's he has that show that has done phenomenally well over the years. Everyone is saying this is his last year. I don't know whether he's announced it. I don't think he has announced it officially. I'll believe him when I see it. Yeah, he's so good at what he does. Yeah, he's very. I mean, he is very, very, very good at what he does. So if you're gonna say okay, Bob, goodbye. Yeah, who do you replace him with? Mm-hmm. I mean, I I don't want to replace Bob. Who would want to replace Bob McCowan? Mm-hmm. He is a Toronto radio institution. Yeah, for a quarter century on sports radio, sports talk radio. He was one of the first guys to do sports talk radio in the city. Yeah, and then turned primetime sport into this juggernaut. So, you want to talk about near impossible shoes to fill? Mm-hmm. So that's that in itself is difficult. And yeah. then, you know, Bob has earned the right to go on his own terms and do yeah. When he said, you know, like, I'm, you know, I'm going to do another year. Okay, Bob. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I mean, look, look how, uh, how important he is to the station and to the company and to the brand. Uh-huh. So, you know, I, whenever he, I guess he decides he wants, to, he's done enough. He wants to walk away. Sure. Uh, goodness knows he's earned the right to call his own shots, but to replace him. I mean, there's some great broadcasters in Canada, but God, I mean, you're replacing Bob McCallum. That's not going to be easy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you'd almost want to be the guy. That replaces the guy that replaced McCowan. Because yes. yes. then you have a lot less stress, and you're not being viewed as the guy that replaced the Bobcat. It's almost like the, the Tonight Show. A hundred percent. Right? <laughs> yeah, because if you were... I mean, fortunately for Jay Leno, he had the whole... Um, 
it was the um, that was interesting when he started out. It was uh, what you call it, Liz Hurley, Hugh Grant. So he had Hugh Grant on after that whole debacle with oh, the prostitute in the car. Yeah, in yeah. the car, and then he was number one that week, and then he was number one every week for like years. Yeah, and it cemented his status. Like I mean, you know, just again on the side here, as much as everyone hammered on Jay Leno, he didn't really have to have any response because everyone in the industry they would look at the ratings and say, "Well, I hate him. I don't like him." But he's number one. But he's doing well. So so he's making money and he's making the network <laughs> money. So I, you know, so that's the same thing uh, with Bobcat. It doesn't matter what you think of him, uh, your opinion. You cannot deny his track record. I mean, to it's I've seen so many people in the business come along and be good for a week, a month, a year. He's but been good be, for decades. He's yeah. been good for decades. Yeah. That 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 is so hard. That's why he's like, like on the Mount Rushmore, a great broadcaster in this country, because he's been doing it for decades. True. Think how hard that is. Yeah, and he's, he literally started two institutions. Didn't he? Didn't he start? What was that global Sportsline? Sportsline. That's right. He was the first host. Yeah. He had a three-piece suit, a beard, you know, very professional. And I remember being in high school. I'm like, oh, what, what is this? Yeah. All the guys like, do you see Sportsline and Global? This is before Taddy and Hebsher and everybody. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, so you think about that, absolutely. Yeah. So was that your first um, introduction to sports radio? Mm-hmm. Was was doing the morning show? Y- yes. Or getting in on the morning show, yeah. Getting in on the morning show. and th- So what happened is, while I was producing the morning show, Scott Metcalf was the news director. And he would come up to me, because the morning show, all the talent would be long gone. And I'd still be there trying to book guests and do this and look ahead. Mm-hmm. And then they'd go into the news and go, like, we need someone to go down to Maple Leaf Gardens and get some sound from Pat Burns and Doug Gilmore or something like sure. that. yeah. And I'm like, well, I'll go. I got to wait for calls and do something anyways. I'll yeah. go down mm-hmm. with a microphone, ask some questions, bring the tape back for the afternoon news run. Yeah. What could be better than that? Sure. And uh, I, I can remember to this day being in a scrum. Um, and Pat Burns was the coach of the Leafs at the time. Was at Maple Leaf Gardens, and all the, re- I'd say, of the veteran reporters in the scrum, there was like four or five guys who were like Hall of Fame newspaper reporters who had been doing it since the fifties. And there I was, and I hold my mic, and I was waiting for the turn, and I was really nervous. And I asked a question. I said, "I, I want to ask this question." And Pat. He kind of, he's a bit, he was a big intimidating guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a biker cop in Hull. And he goes, <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Well, let me, t-. and then, and I remember, I was like, oh, whew, I was getting myself CPR. <laughs> and uh, so then I brought the tape back and then I, I would do more and more stuff. You know, hey, you know, we need to do this. So then at that point I was doing both. I was producing the morning show and whenever they needed, I was doing some reporting and field reporting and stuff like that. Now they knew, um, I had a football passion and football knowledge, and, and I generally liked the CFL. They really didn't have many people there. It, would Don, it was basically Don Landry and myself and Mike Hogan, but they needed some reporters. So I ended up doing a lot of reporting with the Argos in 96, because I got there in 95. So in 96, in an early 97, did a lot of stuff with the Argos in the Doug Flutie era. And, yeah. and then, so I was doing a lot of, so especially if they had a Friday night or a Saturday afternoon game, I have all my morning show responsibilities done and then go down to then Skydome and mm-hmm. cover the Argos and get all the stuff. 
And eventually it worked out that uh, it was Don Landry, Howard Berger, and myself. We covered the Grey Cup in Hamilton, the one where Doug Flutie. It was one of the great games ever. It beat Hamilton in a blizzard at Iverwind Stadium. And by 97, I had transitioned out of the morning show and was just a full-time reporter and update guy. Okay. And then that lasted till October. And the Pirates of B said, you know, we don't know if it's working out and blah, blah, blah. And we're, we're not going to renew your contract. I'm like, okay. I guess, you know, you know, thank you very much. And then I ended up getting hired at Talk 640. And I was doing uh, news, uh, news and sports in the evening and at night and different shifts. And Is that when they had that whole male focus? No, that was before. That was before. Okay, okay. so it was just called Talk 640. Okay. Uh, Marsha Lederman was on there, and uh, Tom Rivers was actually doing the morning show, and Evelyn Macko was doing news. Wow. And they, yeah, it was fantastic. And then so about, I'd say about six, seven, seven or eight months after I started, I they needed someone to do morning and afternoon sports. And I remember Pat Cardinal May he rest in peace. He sadly passed away last year after a tough battle of cancer. Said, can you handle doing a split shift? Do the morning s- sports, then come in the afternoon for a few hours and do the afternoon sports with Marsha. Wow. Like, heck yeah, I can do that. I've never done it. But sure. I, I was the kind of guy that would say, yeah, I can do that. So for two years, I'm not making this up, for two years, I did not take a vacation. Other than a four-day weekend here and there. Yeah. So I did... Uh, the morning sports and afternoon sports. And I also did Argos hosting a little bit of Leafs. Um, whenever Andy Frost couldn't do Leafs talk, I would fill in Leafs talk. Wow. Because my mindset was I could get three or four years experience in two years if I do all this. Mm, okay. So instead of being two years down the line, I would be three or four years down the line in two years. And then... Um, and then in uh, spring of 2000, I got married, and that then we took a week's honeymoon after the wedding. And that was the first like, week off I took, probably since August of 97 till April of 2000. <coughs> now, looking back, that's a little crazy. Yeah. Um, but I felt that's what I had to do. Like, that was my... my you well, had to earn your stripes. I had to, like, I'm... Yeah. You know, I'm going to show you guys. I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to... You guys will go... I'm going to still be here. And uh, well, then eventually, I... You know, was doing morning sports at Q as well, and because um, the system we had in the newsroom, um, we had our desks with our computers, and we had a board, and you could punch in six forty, punch in Q one hundred seven, so you broadcast live from the newsroom. It was a live newsroom? Okay. So if Evelyn Mackle could do news from Q or six forty, I could do sports. Um, you could do whatever, do weather update, breaking news update. James McPhee was there. And so then I, I got a ton of experience there. It was a great experience. And that lasted until uh, 2001. Wow. Um, how, how did you get knowledgeable about, I don't know if that's the right term, but you know, having no sports experience... How did yeah. you? How did you get up on? That? Well, I was always a sports fanatic. Okay. I mean, I, I I was always I always bought the Street and Smith football preview, the hockey news. I mean, I was always a sports guy, but okay. there was no when I broke into radio. There was no sports radio to do. Mm. The only sports that was done is someone did a sports couple sports scores part of the newscast. There were very few stations. Only the big stations had dedicated radio sports guys. Yeah, fair enough. So. Uh, and whenever there was a sports type 
event at any radio station. I tried to be part of it. Mm-hmm. But really, that was the first opportunity I had to dive into the sports world was that when I got offered the job in the fan in early 95. Um, now, I will admit there was then, you know, there's learning curves, extra learning curves on the along the way where you have to, like, get better and more knowledgeable as you move up the ladder. And uh, but you just you find a way to, to gain more knowledge, gain more experience, you know, be better at it, be more researched um, and just build, build your build your name, build your resume. Mm-hmm. So in 2001, where do you where do you go? You, you leave uh, Q and, well, I, and 640. Yeah. Well, what happened was I, no, nobody knew about this. This is at the time it became Mojo. Ah, OK. OK. So this is what happened. Um, Stuart Myers was the program director at the time. And he called me in the office and he said, I got good news and bad news. Because the good news, you still have a job. The bad news, it's not here. I went, <laughs> what does what? that mean? So what does that mean? <laughs> what nobody knew and I didn't know yeah. was a Scott Moore in Sportsnet and Stuart Myers and the Pirates of B that Chorus Radio came up with a concept called Sportsnet Radio. So ah. we would do this. We had a, a, not, a studio not too dissimilar to this. Yeah. With an ISDN, and we would do the sports from the Sportsnet Radio Studios and go to the Edge, Q, 640, Mojo 640, yeah. Hamilton, London, all these core stations in Southern Ontario. Hmm. So I did the morning run. Uh, Jackie Delaney was part of it. Bubba O'Neill, who CHTV. Yeah, yeah. So we were all part of it. And um, the, the, the Raging Redhead, Cam Stewart, okay. who works with Gabriel Morency. Mm-hmm. Who does some stuff? So we would do. We had a schedule, and we would know. Okay, this time at this day, we're doing sports for this station. Ah. So you'd have your sports cast ready, and you had to have a few like. So the London one, they'd want a lot of London night stuff. The Hamilton one, tight. You know what I mean? Yeah, you'd, yeah. You'd have different scripts tailored to the market, and so that's what happened. And then so that's why I started doing sports fr- like on those stations but not at the station sure from from the studio yeah um at the sportsnet studios and that's how i from there i ended up getting into tv at sportsnet mm. because uh damian goddard was doing the morning show not the time they did the morning show live so if you were doing the morning show you had to show up at, at 4 a.m wow. and be be live on tv at six mm-hmm. and all the evening sports anchors were like, they would fill in and they basically told all the management, I can't do this anymore. Because their soul, their body clocks couldn't take it. Sure. They were they were going to bed at that time and they were being asked to be like suit on, ready to go. I'm like, what? Wow. So they, I had done a little bit of TV sports and play by play for OUA football for CHTV. And they had me do a screen test and they said, look, when Damien Goddard goes away, on vacation, he's going away three weeks for this big vacation with his wife to Europe. You're going to fill in and do the morning show, and then can you backfill the morning show on radio? Was, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, and um, and yeah, that's what happened. And then so I did, you know, I did Sportsnet AM, Sportsnet Morning for three weeks while Damien was was away, and then I was basically the backfill. So I would do the radio, and then when when someone was off and then after Damien left, it was Hazel May. Mm-hmm. So w- w- then it was when Hazel had to be off or something, then I would backfill into yeah. the TV side. And then I was like learning how to do TV while I was doing radio at the same time. How different is TV from radio? Well, well I, it was very different. Yeah. The, <laughs> part of the problem it was it's straight. And... Well, it's that, it's that, that, but that part I kind of figured out, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I kind of got, okay, you know, into this, 
What it was is the directors and producers have very specific television terminology mm. that has been developed over years of experience that I had no idea what it would mean. <laughs> and I didn't want to ask them, oh, Jesus, I can't ask this. I'm some buffoon, right? So, and then uh, they would use terms and, uh, and eventually uh, I kind of, oh, that's what that means. Oh, and I would figure yeah, it yeah. out, right? So, yeah, yeah. and um, and then uh, from that, I did, so that was t- basically two years I did a hybrid. And then in 03, they, they dissolved the partnership between Sportsnet Radio and Chorus Radio. And then I got hired full time on the TV side uh-huh. as a reporter and anchor, mm-hmm. reporter, anchor, swing anchor, stuff like that. So then that, I did that from 03 to 2010. Wow. Yeah, and then in twenty early twenty eleven, went back to radio. You went back to yeah, yeah, like hosted the morning show. Yeah, with uh, Greg Brady, the fan. Yeah, um, how was that going back to? I guess going back to to the beginning, you know, it, it was from it was producing great. now hosting. Yeah, well, I mean, we had that that was very good. It was it, a it was great that I was back in the fan morning show. But yeah, like you say, as a co host, yeah, and I had to um, relearn some things that you know, it's like. You say it's like riding a bike, but there's certain little nuances that you need to relearn mm-hmm. in front of a radio microphone that you kind of maybe had forgotten a bit doing TV for 10 years. Yeah. So, and we had a, you know, was, Greg is very talented, great producer, and Ryan Fabro. Uh, Max Prosick was the engineer, so it was a really good crew, good good team. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mike Farwell did the updates, who's fantastic. And I had worked with him before. So we, you know... Uh, again, it's just the way the business goes. We had some great ratings books. It was good success. They decided that they wanted to make a change and like, okay. Mm-hmm. And I had, I left with no ill feeling. Yeah. They, they, okay. That's what you want to do. That's fine. They treated me very fairly. They were, you know, that's just the way the business goes. And it's like life in sports and entertainment. Even if it's successful, even if it's whatever, that doesn't mean there's not going to be a change. Yeah. Or they want to make a change. Change and is they, constant in that It's industry. constant. Yeah. And what you learn, what I didn't know when I first started out and I hadn't learned yet, the long, older you are is the more ad- adaptable you have to teach yourself to be. Mm-hmm. You have to teach yourself. Whatever skill you don't have, you have to teach yourself. Whether it's camera work for TV, whether it's writing, whether it's podcasting, you know, vlogging, what, teach yourself. Mm-hmm. And now with the technology, you have the wherewithal as a young student to teach yourself things that we had no access to in the late 80s. Yeah. And with smartphones these days, you could almost do anything. <laughs> Unbelievable. From there. I mean, we do stuff all the time now. Uh, you can just airdrop videos and pictures, mm-hmm. compile it, make great things out of it. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. And that's where um, you can use the technology to your benefit. Uh, to, to, to basically sell your brand because as a broadcaster, when I say the term, I'm, I'm talking broadcaster now is radio, television, a multimedia, internet, print because print is internet and mm-hmm. podcast. So whether it's you or me or Mike Richards or anybody, um, I, I have tough time saying no because. I love doing stuff like this yeah. because someone might hear it that have never heard me before and go, oh hey. And learn something. Yeah. Someone's going to hear you that never heard you before and go, yeah, he's damn good. You know what? <laughs> you know, and that's where if you, before 15, 20 years ago, if you were out, you were out. How was anyone going to know about you? Yeah, but true. now with social media and websites and podcasting and blogging, mm-hmm. 
you have a way to get your name out and your message out and let people know how what you're all about mm-hmm. that didn't exist before, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. Why is... Why is morning radio, right? I guess the morning shift on radio, very important? It, it seems that there's a lot of focus uh, on on making sure that the morning show is really, really tight. What, 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 I, what? I, I think a big part of it is a function of the GTA in general. Okay. If you think about the population of the GTA, uh, you know, my wife and I, we've been in new markets since 04, and a lot of it was financial reasons. Yeah. We tried. We looked at buying a house in the Kingsway or Elise side. I'm like, we simply can't afford it. Mm-hmm. We were in Brampton at the time. We had outgrown our house. So, like a lot of families, we had to we commute. Yeah. So, ever almost everybody I know, all our extended friends, commute some sort of distance. It's unavoidable in the city. And so, if you're commuting, you're stuck in your car, or you have your mm. a tune-in app on your phone, and you're on a streetcar or go train. You're going to listen to something, and some yeah. people some people will listen to audiobooks or podcasts, yeah. and other people will want to listen to radio. Yeah. And that's why that feeling is a lot of people are held hostage to the to the drive into work, so you better have a good morning show and bring ears in and bring people in to your station to create revenue. Yeah. That's a big part of it. When, when did 105.9 approach you? How, how did that work? Um it was really it was funny. I came out of the blue. I had I didn't even know it was a. They were thinking of making a station there in Markham, and um, the the powers that be and the program director had heard I was a free agent, and I guess they're no way. And someone said, "Well, just give them a call." Mm-hmm. So they called me. They pitched me. They told me what what it was about, and I love the concept of really focusing on local. You know, because I live in York Region, I always felt like it was very ignored mm-hmm. you'd be sure. stuck in traffic and go well how listening to toronto news yeah i'm like hey how come i'm not moving on highway seven and warden like what's happened yeah you know and and so we were trying to feel a fill a niche in that area that market mm-hmm. but yeah they they approached me and i was up front and said look i i've I, I just i might i had the book deal hadn't been signed yet because i may have to do a book here and they're like that's mm-hmm. fine if you need to take a day off here and there to work in the book that's fine great They've been extremely accommodating that way, and you know we've. Um, it's been great to see the station grow slowly but surely, and the audience grow. And um, you know, it's. I just. I mean, after everything I've seen in the business in the last five, ten years, I'm just happy to be on the radio. Like I'm being, <laughs> I'm being honest. Like I, I still generally enjoy. Yeah. Like people ask me, how do I get up? Well, I still like it. Yeah. I still like getting in there, and I, I as soon as I get into this the workstation and fire up my computer and get in the studio, I feel the juice going. And I, I genuinely enjoy doing the craft of doing like broadcasting. Mm-hmm. I like it. And, and then I do my production and meetings and writing or whatever I have to do. And I get home and have lunch. And if I have some writing to do, I'll write in the afternoon. And because my, my wife takes care of the kids in the morning while I'm at work, I'm yeah. the afternoon shift. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I'm the, like, you know, that's, you know, we split that up and, and I, I, I generally, I love it. And I'm going to, like, I, I'm not kidding. I'm going to keep doing as long as I can. Like, I want, I want, I'm sorry, sure. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I want to get back to, to radio. But I want to take a detour because you, you totally reminded me, and I had it in my notes, that how did you become, I know you became a writer because you yes. wanted to sort of develop more skills. So you started writing about football. Yeah. Um, but how did you 
how did you start getting to book writing it, especially with uh, with with Domi and Clark? Well, um, the longer I wrote for Sportsnet.ca, I started to write longer form pieces. Okay. And then what happened was when I got after I got let go from the TV side and then rehired by the radio side four months later, five months later, whatever it was, they just started Sportsnet magazine. Yes, yes. So I started doing some pieces for Sportsnet magazine. Because it all fell on the umbrella of what I made in my contract. Yeah. So it didn't cost them any extra money. Sure. And what happened was uh, a mutual friend of mine that had done a book deal, his agent said, do you know of any writers? They said, well, have you read some of Jim Lang's stuff on sportsnet.ca? He said, no, I'll check it out. Mm -hmm. So then uh, his name's Brian Wood, and then Brian contacted me, and then we had coffee, and and so he's. We came up with a concept for a book, and he liked it. And I interviewed a number of uh, ex-players for the purposes of gaining the material for the book. And they pitched it, and one publisher thought they were going to go f- go through with it. Yeah. Then it fell through. Mm. So I went to Steve Mache, who ran Sportsnet Magazine, and said, Look, I got all this material here. I'd like to do a long-form piece about it. He goes, I'll do you one better. We just started doing ebooks. I go, ebooks. I go, oh. He goes, yeah, Brunt's doing one, Stephen Brunt. Yeah, Would yeah. You, why don't you do an ebook with this material? Yeah. And I and it was 25,000 words. Yeah. And I had never written anything that long before. And it was a great challenge. And uh, I was happy with it. And What was the book about? What was the ebook It was called about? The Mental Game. So basically, I talked to Wayne Gretzky, yeah. Wendell Clark, Gary Roberts, Doug Gilmore, Jeremy Roenick, and Mike Gartner yeah. on their game day routine. Ah. What they did and why they did it. It, like from the time they got up to yeah. the time they went to, like every guy yeah. had a different routine. Hmm. Like Ronick said he would throw up and wouldn't stop talking. He had nerves. Okay. Gilmore said he would drink fluids all day long. He always felt like he was going to be dehydrated. Like every guy had really different things. Gretzky, huh. like he was telling a funny story when he, in the early eighties, mid eighties, when he was with Edmonton, as he said, there was no power bars or sports drinks. So I would eat a ham and cheese sandwich and a glass of Sprite between the second and third period. And I said, you're kidding. He said, no, I was hungry. <laughs> and then, they said, I'd have the trainer and there'd be a ham sandwich yeah. and a thing of Sprite on a stool yeah. after the second period so he could eat something so he had energy for the third. Wow. Like, I was fascinated by that stuff. Really interesting. Yeah, so, um, so, it, was, so it got out there. And then, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, Simon & Schuster wanted to do something with uh, Ty Domi mm-hmm. and Brian suggested my name Yeah, and I had known Ty from my work on the Leafs beat with Sportsnet traveling with the team and they said well what's he all about and they said here's this ebook he wrote and they checked it out and they go oh okay and so it's funny that's like 10 years after the first thing I wrote for Sportsnet.ca yeah. uh, of not quote unquote not really making any extra money for it but like learning how to write so 10 sure. years after that that ebook was an in to the publisher to actually give me the time of day and go, okay. And then through negotiations, through this and that, Ty and his people checked it out and like, okay, all yeah. right. And then, um, and then I, I, I did the book with Ty and literally two months after it was over, Brian called and said, I think we could do a book with Wendell Clark. Are you interested? I was yeah. like, yes, of course I'm interested. You've never said no to anything. It sounds <laughs> not, like not, not often. <laughs> no, I'm always, I'm always, you know, part of it is 
No, I've lost jobs. Sure. And I've been walked out, and I've seen some great people walked out. So we always think, well, if I say no, mm. you know, there's always that in the back of your head. You, 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 in, in this country, in this business, it's tough to say no. Yeah. It's tough to be so secure and so big and so good at what you do that you're confident enough to say no and not worry about it. Yeah. Huh. I don't know, man. There, there's a handful, like Marilyn Dennis. Yes, fair enough. You know, uh, Bob McCowan. <laughs> Dan Schultz, I mean, you're talking about a pretty select list of people who can say, nah, I really don't want to do that. You know, blah, 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 blah. But yeah, so I, but I also was a Wendell fan. Sure. I really want, I jumped at the chance. It was a great experience. But then after the Wendell book was released, I told Brian, I, I, I just did two books in three years. I need to take a break. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm cross-eyed, you know, from all the writing, like, you know, and so we took a break and then we're slowly getting back into it now. And yeah. Hope to have something put together by the fall, and because I, you know, my, you know, I got you know, family stuff going on. The kids, I sure. said, Brian, I needed to, after the book tour was done in early December. I just, I watched some, I, you know, because I, when you're doing a book, you don't watch anything. I'm like, hey, there's a good show on Netflix called Narcos. And <laughs> you're so, yeah, thanks, Jim. You sound so out of it. Like, hey, have you heard about the show Grey's Anatomy? And they're going, oh God. <laughs> nice. How how is it writing? You know, you it's. it's with you know, with Ty Domi or Wendell Clark, how is it writing with them? Like, how does that process work? It, it's a relationship. Yeah, you're 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 going to have to spend a lot of time with the subject because mm-hmm. you're writing their story. Yeah, and with the publisher, you work on a outline, a blueprint for how they think they want the book to go. Okay, and then through numerous conversations, you start like building the house, mm. the foundation, the walls, the roof. Yeah, and then. What happens, what you see in the bookshelf is probably the fourth ed- fourth edition of the draft. Okay. Like the rewrites and, a, you know, tweaking this and that. Yeah. So we have the first draft. And after we get the first draft done, then we start doing the editing and rewriting. So that might go, we might end up doing three or four edits and rewrites and tweaks till they feel, okay, they're, we accept this. This is what we want. Yeah. Until like, let's double and they have, and then when they get to that level, then it goes from the editor you're working with to the line editor who goes line by line to look for any little minuscule sure. missing caught, like anything as minuscule, as minute as it is, then the lawyers go through it to make sure there's no potential libel and slander. Sure. Like, I don't know if we want to, I don't know if we want to say this here. You'll hear yeah. that. Like, okay, we'll see if we can fix it. But um, when you walk by the bookshelf yeah, and you see it, you're like, Oh, Hey, I did that. Yeah. You know, I, that's, that's whatever money you make is great. But I, I don't know if it can, like that that feeling. I remember walking by. It was in chapters. I just walked up to the sports section. I folded my arms. I looked at it, and there was like, you know, Ken Dryden, like Bob McKenzie. Yeah. And then there was, you know, blah blah blah. And then there was. And then the, there's you. The, there's the book I co-wrote. <laughs> like, oh wow, that was that was sort of a little bit of an out of body experience. That was, that was very self satisfying. I can't lie. What is it about? Ty Domi, is it because he was a Leaf and this is the biggest hockey market that he has, it still is popular? I mean, for a guy that, that made his money with his fists. Yeah, that's that's definitely part of it, Kareem. I mean, he's playing for the Leafs in the big market as long as he did, and he yeah. was there doing a lot of great playoff runs with Pat Quinn. Hmm. Certainly helps. But there is, there is that romantic connection for a lot of fans that here was this relatively small guy sure. compared to the guys he fought. Yeah. Who ended up with 
333 fighting majors. <laughs> now, you think about that number. It's un- How many uh, fights a year is that? Do you know? Well, uh, he fought, I mean, for the bulk of his career, he was in 20 to 25 fights a year. Crazy. So wow. crazy numbers. Yeah. And here was this guy who was, in a lot of ways, giving up six, eight inches in height to some of the guys he was fighting, fighting for his team, fighting for the Leafs, doing anything to win. Yeah. And I think that made a real connection with a lot of fans. You know, I think a lot of fans saw that as, you know, he was fighting for them. He was fighting yeah. for the, the the blue and white, the Maple Leaf, the <laughs> Shield. And, um, you know, he was it was a fascinating story with Ty because, you know, he his family were um, immigrants. His dad escaped Albania after the war and mm. um, really hardworking European immigrants. His dad had like two or three jobs every day and his mom was always cooking and cleaning. And, you know, we're almost, you know, this this romantic notion of coming to Canada and making a better life. And they were definitely part of it, the Domi yeah, family. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then Ty, you know, I didn't know about it till doing the book. He was very dyslexic and they, huh. they didn't really diagnose it at the time. They thought he was a slow learner, but he was dyslexic. Huh. And, you know, and you know, at the time, like now you'd be diagnosed, you'd have sure. special education people, special teachers to help you. My oldest is one of her girlfriends who's an, in the advanced academics program in high school. In the gifted program, is dyslexic. Yeah. That's how it's changed. Yeah. You can be dyslexic and get 90s and 100s yes. now with the way teaching is, the approach to teaching mm-hmm. in 2017. And in the 70s, it was very different just because, you know, they didn't know. Yeah. So, I mean, every – and I, that's what I really enjoy is you, we think as a reporter, as a fan – We've read everything. We know everything there is to know about a player. But when you sit down that much and spend that much time with the athlete and helping them write their story, whether it's Wendell Clark or Ty Domi, whomever, you learn a lot. I mean, not everything we talk about makes it in the book. Sure. So you learn a lot about the person and the player that you just simply you thought, I didn't know that. And that's I, I really enjoyed that. It was very interesting to me. Is there something about um, Wendell Clark that made it in the book that you didn't know that you found very surprising, very revealing? He hates the word I. We had to do a rewrite. He was very uncomfortable. He said, I'm not comfortable with that. Okay. He's very much. I did this or I did that. He does not like that. Wow. Very much we and team. I Mm. really respected that. He, uh, the one thing, he just kind of just offhandedly mentioned it one time. Just like a throwaway. He's never lost a tooth playing hockey. I I read that somewhere. Yeah. I went, what? Stop it. He goes, (laughs) nope. And he goes, and I. And, I, and the way that he played, yes, <laughs> and, and you know, no shield, just a CCM bucket. And yeah. So yeah, so little things like that. And um, Wendell's very self-deprecating. He, he's not a. He's definitely. He's not a me me guy. He's, he's got a real sense of, you know, farming will humble you. And he grew up mm. in a in a grain farm, cattle farm in the middle of nowhere in Calmington, Saskatchewan, with nine hundred people. You know, and that's, it's work every, every day is work. Yeah. Every day. It demands it. And so that's kind of, that's his approach. And, you know, you talk is cheap. You still got to go out and do the work. Mm-hmm. And Wendell's is down to earth a person as I've ever met. Yeah. Like there's not, there's not a phony bone in his body. And so who are, who are you writing about next? Well, I'm not allowed to say. Uh, no one listens to this, Jim. <laughs> 
No, illegally, I'm not allowed to say Okay. <laughs> uh, but we, we'll, I'll send you a note. We'll know in the fall. They're going to announce it in the fall. Sports, another sports it, book? Another sport, yeah. another hockey book. Another hockey book? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. And you're, I, I'm obviously very excited about it, right? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm excited about anything I write about. Like, I really, I generally am. Yeah? Uh, because um, I remember years ago watching a documentary on Don Hewitt, who was the senior producer of 60 Minutes. Okay. And... And I, I, I always thought this guy was a genius. And he said, you know, I'm really not that smart. Huh. And he said, my secret to the success of 60 Minutes is I tell all my reporters, tell me a story. Tell me a story. Ah. So I always think think about that. I want someone to read it and go, I didn't know that. Like, you, there was a story in there that I had no idea about. That I, got, I thought I knew everything about this guy. Yeah. But then I read that and goes, I didn't know that. Hmm. And when I hear that... It makes me happy. And the other one is when I had this woman come up to me in one of the book signings. And I wasn't signing anything. I was just there to help. And I think it would both happen at the tie signing and the window signing. And they go, you know, my husband never reads, but he wanted to read this book. Huh. Now, I love that because sure. I love reading. Yeah. And so if and I was part of something there where some guy who never reads decided he wanted his wife, he wanted as a gift to read it, then I think that's that's great. There you go. Yeah, because the more we read, the better we are as a society. Is is there a book? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but is is there a book you're reading right now that you're really enjoying? Uh, or one that you just recently finished. Yeah, uh, I just reread um, D Day by Anthony Beaver, who's probably the preeminent uh, British military historian, um, and it's probably the most in depth, as far as I'm concerned, the most in depth academic look at the the prelude to Operation Overlord, to D Day itself, with the Americans, Canadians, and British with in-depth research and stories on all the Allied beachheads, not just focusing on the Americans. In-depth look at how the Germans, the mistakes on both sides, and then the march to Paris. It was, it's a fantastic book. It's, it's tremendous. The only place where it's identified that you are a military historian buff is, mm. in, is in your Twitter bio. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't find anywhere else. What, what is it... Um, what what is it about military history? You, you mentioned that your father yes uh, served. Um, what what is it about military history that that really interests you? I, well, for me, it's 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 part of Canada. Okay, we as a nation, we don't look back enough of what we have accomplished as in the military standpoint. What happened was in the late fifties, Lester B. Pearson. Helped broker a peace deal mm-hmm. in the Suez Crisis and won a Nobel Peace Prize, and then that morphed into Canada as a peacekeeping nation. Mm-hmm. And while that is true, while we have proudly worn the blue helmet in battlefields around the world, what Canadians don't realize is more Canadian men and women have died in peacekeeping missions mm-hmm. than we did in Afghanistan. Mm. It, I mean, what you're doing is you're putting Canadian armed forces personnel, soldiers, sailors, airmen between two warring factions to keep the peace. Sometimes they don't listen. Yeah. And then people die. Yeah. And I don't I as a as a Canadian, I don't want the nation ever to forget that yes, we're peacekeepers, but we also have warriors in this country. Mm-hmm. We still do. We still train them. Yeah. I have a friend who's in an army unit that technically can never be identified and his mission does not exist. Wow. Even Justin Trudeau probably doesn't know what he's doing at this moment. Hmm. There might be two or three people in the Canadian military that know. Yeah. 
That ha- We have that. Now, here's a few things. As Canadians, we are so overwhelmingly influenced by American movies and television. Fair, yeah. We, other than Hyena Road by Paul Gross, which was a pretty good movie, and Rosef um, Sutherland, Kiefer's younger brother. Yes. It's a pretty good uh, depiction of Canadians in Afghanistan. Yeah. But the only way we as Canadians are going to sit up and take notice of what we do as a military, past or present, is prominent, huge Canadian movie stars like Ryan Reynolds or Ryan Gosling. Mm. If they played a Canadian helicopter pilot rescuing people or what, whatever it is, sure. people can average Canadians would learn, it would, pop culture. Yeah, would learn more from that yeah. than they do from their history books and what we are as a nation, because we have this grand military history. And I, I, I just don't want it to go away mm. because we partly, it's partly of the government, the, the government. Yeah. They don't, we as a, a government, especially, the liberals, I'm not trying to be too political, but they always like to push peacekeeping first. Mm-hmm. And it's the dirty little secret that we have all these these men and women who are trained to kill. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. That's what they that's what they sign up for. Yeah. But they don't they don't want that as the public image. Sure. Publicly, they want us as the humanitarians, the peacekeepers, which we do very well. Mm-hmm. But also it's acknowledged by friend and foe alike. We also do the other part very well as indeed. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought about writing a book on military history? Or I would love to, yeah. um, whether or not it comes to be. I mean, that's something I'd probably do down the road. I would yeah. definitely like to do that. I mean, you know, it's tough for Canadians because, you know, after the Korean War, uh, from 1953, you really didn't have Canadians in hardcore combat till the Medak pocket in 1993, other than peacekeeping. Hmm. And that was a, a UN peacekeeping mission, but we had Canadians in a firefight for their lives. Yeah. And even then, with the the Christian government at the time, they kept it very secret. They didn't want Canadians to know about it. Yeah. The Canadians were in a peacekeeping mission, but to save their lives, they had to shoot at the other side to preserve themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually they got recognized, and a lot of the, the men involved received medals and commendations and decorations. Uh, but Afghanistan changed it. I think what happened is all of a sudden now on the on the news and in the newspaper, you're seeing stories about men and women from towns that maybe neighborhoods mm-hmm. that were serving in Afghanistan. Yeah, you know, and that like I think as Canadians, that was that hadn't really happened to a mil, an overseas military um, adventure like that, for lack of a better term, since the Korean War. I mean, the peacekeeping missions are one thing, and it, it is there is a lot of fraught with danger, and Canadians have died in peacekeeping. But this was war. This was the Afghanistan war, mm-hmm. and we had Canadians over there fighting and dying. Yeah, you know, and the highway of heroes and everything that went with it, and that, you know, for a lot of Canadians, they couldn't, they had trouble comprehending that. But that's that's something you know, don't forget. There were I had a friend who was a rec- in the recruiting office in Barrie. And after 9-11, once Canadians started going there, they couldn't keep up with the demand wow. of young men who wanted to sign up and train and go over there. Hmm. Because Canadian military is all volunteer. Yeah. You know, it has been. We, we, we have never had, quote unquote, the draft like they had in Vietnam. Yeah. Now, they had conscription of World War II. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, the, the hardcore soldiers wanted nothing to do. They, call, they didn't want them. They wanted them in the they didn't want them in the front lines. They wanted them in the rear. Sure. There was a real esprit de corps that you you signed up, you volunteered, you trained, and you went. Mm-hmm. And that's 
I mean, a lot of countries around the world, even Scandinavian countries, have mandatory military service. And unless there's some dire national emergency, Canada, that's just not Canada's way. Mm-hmm. We, the, the men and women who serve in the military, they sign up for it. They ask for it. They train for it. Yeah. So I, it, it's, I, it's not, I'm not glorifying death and destruction. I'm acknowledging some of the greatness that they did in, in our names, in mm-hmm. our country's name. Yeah. And that's, I think that's very important. Wait, was it the service that you, that your dad gave that sort of highlighted some of these things that got you really, really interested? It was my dad. It was my uncle too. Mm-hmm. My uncle, my mom's from Cornwall and back in the forties, you could, all the birth certificates were basically handwritten. All right. You know, I mean, there was all like an ink pen. It sure, was, sure. you know, and so he grew a mustache with my uncle Claude and he took an ink pen and forged his birth certificate and it was pretty common and he was too young, but he, he looked, he was decent sized with the mustache and the birth certificate. He ended up joining the Hastings Prince Edward regiment. Okay. So when he was 18, when he should have been signing up, he was landing in Sicily. Wow. In operation Husky in July of 1943 Hmm. and fought in Sicily, Italy and Holland through world war two. And and I, you know, and I've read different books, and I and I always wonder, you know, I was why why as a nation do we never want to acknowledge what we've we've done in the past and things like that? Partly is maybe it's the film, television, entertainment industry like to do films on other subjects. They don't want to do that. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Paul Gross basically is the only Canadian filmmaker who does any kind of movie around the Canadian military experience. Yeah. Whether it was Passchendaele, World War One, or it's Hyena Road in Afghanistan. But for the mo- we, we have some incredibly talented television, film, you know, you name it. We, we've produced world-class filmmakers, not just here in Canada, but who are in the international stage, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, uh, Jason Reitman or Norman Jewison. I mean, go on and on, some of these great people. But we don't make... We don't make we don't make American Sniper and we don't make those sure. kind of movies. Zero Dark Thirty yeah. and The Hurt Locker, where, mm. where Canadians have done stuff like that and do stuff like that. We see the the movies which are depicting Americans do that, but in our consciousness as Canadians, we don't think of our military doing that, but they do. Yeah, it's it's tough to, and then unfortunately the way media works now, unless they see it on a big Hollywood movie. The average Canadian doesn't know it exists. They don't, or know, about it. They sure. don't know about it. Fair enough. Even a story like Argo. Yeah. Which which is like when I learned about it in school was a Canadian. Ken Taylor. Was, yeah. Yeah. But you you watch in the theater and Canada was just, a, you know, they played a little part. Right. They just happened to be there. So that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's a great example. Ken yeah. Taylor. What he did was remarkable. Mm-hmm. The risk he took yeah. in Iran in 1980. And as you say, I watched Argo and Wait a second. What about Ken Taylor? <laughs> you know, but that's yeah. Now, if Ryan Reynolds and Ryan Gosling yeah. and and Rachel McAdams and some big heavyweight Canadian Hollywood stars get together with um, Paul Haggis, who's a now a Canadian who's a big time writer director, yeah, and maybe bring Drake into it and <laughs> and make a Canadian epic about some subject, yeah. historical subject, we will watch we because. Will... Yeah. They're they're a major Hollywood stars. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's why I don't. I'm trying to carry the torch, and I don't want it to fizzle out because there's so many great stories about so many people that 
the average Canadian doesn't know about, but you, you talk to them about it, it goes, they did that? I go, yeah, they did that. Wow. They did that. And there's so many of them, and I just don't want it to go away. We, I could sit here and, and literally talk to you for, for, for many more hours, but I know you need to get back home. No, you, I got, you, I got you, 50 more minutes. 50, oh, well, I'll, well let's, let's take a really bad segue back to radio. Sure. Um, so 105.9, the region. Yes. Um, like local radio, it, it almost sounds like you know, you're, you're not trying to be the, this big massive thing. You've got a very niche audience. Mm-hmm. You're trying to serve a very niche need. Um, Financial, I don't need you to tell me the finance or anything, but but how does it work as a business? Like, how does it make sense business wise? No, it's a it's a great question. What happens is that from a business sense, you're serving um, the local York Regional Police, the Markham Fire Department, the city councils, mm-hmm. the the charities in the region, local businesses, local sports teams mm-hmm. who need a voice. Who without a local radio station. Who's going to show up at the the walk for MS? Who's going to be there for you know Rib Fest and so and so? Unless mm. you hear it on the because we're so inundated, yeah, in the in the GTA with um, satellite radio, the Oxcord, uh, books on tape, podcast, yeah. uh, Toronto radio. So if you're flipping around and you hit hit go to one hundred five nine the region, find our station, you'll find out about local things. And I, I'm a big believer that there's still a market for local radio, local information, local news, local mm-hmm. community involvement in charities. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't know till started working there. There's a community group based in Richmond Hill called 360 Kids. Okay. And 360 Kids deals with the hidden homelessness problem. There's a there are hundreds of homeless teens in York Region. Wow. Every night, and I didn't know about it because. A suburban bedroom community and all these. You don't looks, think there is, yeah. You don't think there is. We always associate homeless teens with, you know, a Queen Street in Toronto and that, but they're they're all over. Yeah. And so that that was real eye opener. Huh. And they have a drop in center that if someone's been kicked out of the house, someone's had a problem, sexual abuse, drugs or alcohol, need somewhere to go, they have a drop in center. There's no questions. They get checked in. The police check in one once in a while to make sure everything's okay. Yeah, I mean it's it's fantastic, and I now I would in my day to day life I would have never known about three sixty kids had not worked had I not worked there. Yeah, and there's other things like that that I it's been very enlightening. And it, you know it, the, the pitch to me was and I and I believe it. There's one point two million people so there so they live north of Steeles. Yeah, in York Region. Mm-hmm. You know you think Peel Region it's bigger. Yeah, Durham Region it's big. Mm-hmm. Just because of the, the function of housing costs, more and more people are going out to find a place to live they can afford. Absolutely. Yeah. And they need to be serviced in media and radio. They need to know what's happening in their community. They don't always want to have to drive all the way back downtown on a weekend to do something when there's lots of stuff in their own backyard if they if someone tells them about it. Sure. The cultural festivals, uh, music festivals, um, you know, business shopping, whatever it is, often they're only a few kilometers away from that yeah. if they know about it. True. So what we kind of do at the station is using social media, um, our website, our radio station, and then we try to get the word out. And then, you know, our, in local, local businesses see the benefit of it. Mm-hmm. We do some videos. We do different things, and it helps sell the brand. Nice. You have a show, uh, Mayors in the Morning. Yeah. Um, what... 
you're familiar with Toronto issues. You've worked here for many years. Um, what are the similarities and what are the differences between York Region issues and Toronto issues? The similar similarities are infrastructure. Hmm. Mass transit and infrastructure, I think, is similar to both Toronto and York Region. Yeah. The opening of the Vaughn subway at Highway 7 and Jane in November-ish in and around is huge. Because now you could be at Highway 7 and Jane in Vaughn and get the subway and go all the way down to Union Station. And now there's a huge push with Frank Scarpitti, the mayor of Markham, and Dave Barrow, the mayor of Richmond Hill, mm-hmm. and all the York Region politicians to take the young subway from Finch and stretch it up past Steeles to Highway 7. Wow. And basically what the the big vision is in 10, 15, 20 years, mm-hmm. however long it takes, it have a network of bus lines from all around York Region meeting at the subway portals yeah. in York Region to get people off the car, out of the cars, off the highways, yeah. and reduce the traffic on the DVP and the 400 and mm-hmm. all the other arteries, and then get from whatever it is onto the subway and take it down to the city. Sounds like there's, a, there's political will to do that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, versus yeah. Toronto where it's... <laughs> oh, no, the political will is strong. <laughs> yeah. but, but now there's a real fight going on where John Tory uh, demands a downtown relief line. Yeah. And then someone said, well, why are you spending $3 billion to build a one-stop subway in you know, Scarborough? Scarborough? So, you know, that's that's where I think a common problem for both is... You need money from the feds, yeah. the province, yeah. the municipality, and now private money. Yeah, private money's got to be part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and and whether that's someone, a, a company having, I don't know where they 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 defer some of the construction costs to have the right to maybe the official coffee or whatever it is. Sure. Of the, you know the subway stop. Yeah. But I mean the money that's these things need to be built. Yeah. To move the mass of people we're talking about. And that's, I think that's a common thing. Um, I think multicultural issues are common because it, once upon a time you had pockets in Toronto with a real melting pot of different people. That's all over now. Mm. You can't go anywhere now in York region, in Toronto, in Peel region where you're dealing with different cultures, different religions, different yeah. backgrounds. And they have to have, you have to be you have to have knowledge. You have to have sensitivity of it. You can't, mm-hmm. you know, unless you're taught, how would you know that you may True. be possibly offending someone if you don't know? Mm-hmm. So it's educating kids, teaching kids about different customs, religions, holidays. I think that's very important. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, the whole nation, I mean, my grandfather came to this country from Germany in the 20s, like like off the boat with like the equivalent of $30 in his pocket, didn't speak a word of English. Yeah. You know, my wife's parents came to Canada from Holland after the war which is some money in their pocket. So so unless you're an Aboriginal or an Inuit, mm-hmm. you are not native Canadian. Yeah. So, and the function of the world is for all the problems we have, all you have to do is turn on the news. Hmm. And I, I can totally see why someone would come from halfway around the world to live here. I totally see it. Wow. Do you know the last time there's been a shot fired in anger in a war in Canada? I mean, other than the fact there was a couple U-boats in the Gulf of St. Lawrence of World War II, mm-hmm. was the War of 1812. Wow. And you think about that. There, there, no one's dropped a bomb on Canada or fired a cannon shell on our land mm-hmm. since the War of 1812. Yeah. We've got, you know, we have issues, but for the most part, we're an inclusive country mm-hmm. with health care, with good, decent schools. Yeah, I can see why people are 
cashing in their chips in another part of the world and want to live here. And now as a country, it's our duty to make sure we have the support systems for these people, mm-hmm. pe- you know, that adjust to the country, uh, whether it's language and culture, whatever it is, the infrastructure to handle it, the schools, the medicine, the hospitals. I mean, that's that's a big part of it. I mean, I know one thing, one of the things we do in York Region that is similar to Toronto is hospital fundraisers. Hospitals yeah. are constantly trying True. to raise money to Markham Stolville, South Lake Hospital. Uh, McKenzie Health in Richmond Hill is now building a new McKenzie Health in Vaughan to service Vaughan. Well, that's by the time it's all done, I think you're, you're talking close to a billion dollars wow. to build a, a modern state-of-the-art hospital in sure. Canada. Yeah, but, you know, and so that that doesn't all come from the government. It's you know charity fundraisers and golf events and this and that, and that's a challenge I think for all Canadians to be able to take in more people because the way the world is going. We have this vast land with still a relatively small population. We're going to get bigger because people are going to run out of room in other countries or decide mm-hmm. they don't want to live there. They're going to want to come here. And, and I think more than ever with with, hap- with the U.S. political landscape and Donald Trump, a lot of people look at Canada as a more viable option to come and to settle, to bring their offshore money. To sure. immigrate is to come to Canada. Hmm. I mean, I, I see what's happening where people are literally physically walking Across the border, Across, in, the, in the middle of winter, yeah, in Manitoba and Quebec to come here. I don't know how you don't get moved by that as a Canadian. They're so willing to do that. True. So that's um, that. That makes me proud. Nice. And I, you know, I, I know sometimes people think it's corny, but yeah. I, I am a generally a, a proud Canadian. You know, I've traveled through with my dad through, you know, growing up through with his with the military. I've traveled in other places, and there's. There, I've seen some neat things and things that you know oh, that's really nice. Yeah, you know, you know, Eiffel Tower is pretty nice. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie, but you know, there's like a half dozen fully armed combat soldiers, automatic weapons that walk around the Eiffel Tower. True, because they have to. Yeah, you know, and I, I've been around Rogers Center and CN Tower. There's police, but I don't see automatic weapons and grenade launchers. No, that is so true. So that is so true. And so that's where you go. You know what? We are not perfect. Yeah. We, we ain't so bad. It might be cold in the winter. Yeah, but I'll take it. Yeah. Gosh darn it, I'll take it. <laughs> Jim, thank you so much thank for spending you. some time with me. Karen, I, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you.